Morning, everybody. It is great to see you today. I hope you all have had a good week. I had a really good week. Last Sunday, we had a great Sunday in worship together. It was good to be with you. And we talked about some really important things, really some, some crucial things to understanding the Christian life. If you were not here, I would encourage you to go back and access that online. And then we went home, and it was our daughter's fifth birthday last Sunday. And so we did things that five-year-olds do and enjoyed that. And, and then early evening, I went through this period of intense suffering for about two and a half quarters of the football game. And, and this suffering came in many forms. It came in the form of, of just watching the game itself, which was rather painful for that part of it. Uh, it came in the form of many text messages on my phone and even a video from some of our choir members and some of our elders that were talking about the Atlanta Falcons and how it was nice to see the Patriots on the losing end of things. And, and it was really hard. But then... But then my evening moved from suffering to glory. I mean, from suffering to glory. It almost sounds like a biblical theme, doesn't it? And it was enacted in front of my very eyes in the middle of a football game. From suffering to glory. Well, it actually is a biblical theme. And it's one that we're going to talk about today. And so let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. And let's see how he works among us this morning. Father, it is good to be with your people today. Uh, It is good to have voices to sing to you, to express the great truths of who you are and what you've done, to express our praise and adoration, our love and affection to you in song. And we ask, God, that it is pleasing to you. And we thank you for the spirit which wells up within us as these truths are expressed. Lord, it is good to have ears to hear and a mind to process. And how when we hear your word and are challenged by it, that same spirit that inspired the word of God again wells up within us as we engage with it and process and indeed you transform us and change us. And we worship you and we praise you for these things. Help us now in this time to have ears to hear, to have minds to engage And, Lord, we trust you for the work of transformation. We pray these things for the sake of your glory and for our benefit. Amen. What are you going to do with your life? That's a question that parents often ask their children. We ask that of our children, even starting at young age, but we really don't expect a meaningful answer until they get somewhere in their late teens to early 20s. Maybe your parents have asked you that question. What are you going to do with your life? (laughs) Maybe you have asked that question of your own children. And the answer that almost always is given has to do with our career pursuits, doesn't it? Because when we live on our agenda, careerism and the pursuit of our comforts often are the things that rule the day. But when we live on God's agenda, our career, as important as it is, is not what defines us. And we talked about that last week. 
Rather, when we live on God's agenda, we look at all the avenues of our life as being motivated by this agenda to know Jesus personally and to help others know Jesus. This is God's agenda for your life. And in that agenda, as you pursue God in that agenda, I have some good news for you and some bad news for you. Here's the good news. The good news is that if you shed your own agenda for life and adopt God's agenda, then you will have a life that is incredibly fulfilling in its purpose and its expression. You'll have a life that has inexplainable or unexplainable joy. You'll have a life that has growth attached to it, sometimes in rapid, rapid uh, succession, sometimes in more slow and plodding succession. You'll have progress that you see and you'll have a sense of excitement because you are engaged of something of eternal purpose. That's the good news. The bad news is that if you pursue God's agenda for your life, this is a life that also has the potential to be filled with significant difficulty. How do I know? Well, as we turn to Philippians chapter 1, I'm struck by the fact that in the middle of our passage for this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That is not the news that we want to hear when we think about what a faithful life looks like. So far in Philippians, we've seen a number of themes, haven't we? We're only a couple weeks into this new series, and we've seen this theme of progress, of progressing together in the life of faith. Nobody wants to be stuck in park in their spiritual growth. Everybody wants to move forward. And when you do progress in the life of faith, this is something that happens together. It happens with other people. It happens in the context of community. No Lone Ranger Christians. We see that progressing in this life of faith is constituted by setting aside our agenda and adopting God's agenda. And so Paul can say things like, to live is Christ and to die is gain because he understands that God calls us to know Jesus and when you get to know him this encapsulates all of your life and to help others to know him along this path as well this is a greater agenda for our lives than our own careers It's a greater agenda for our lives than our own comforts. It's even a greater agenda for our lives than securing a certain lifestyle for our children. And now we see that in the middle of this section of Philippians, that one of the implications of God's agenda for our life is this wonderfully fulfilling life that is potentially filled with difficulty or even suffering. And so in what way do we press forward? What way do we pursue vibrant growth? What disposition do Christians need to have as they engage in this wonderful, growing, fulfilling life together, but at the same time, a life that is potentially wrought with difficulty? That's the topic of this morning's message. And so I want to ask you to turn with me, if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 1. 
And we're going to start at chapter 1, verse 27. It's found on page 980 of the Pew Bible. And I do encourage you to turn there if you have not yet done so. Because we're going to look very closely at some, some specific words and phrases this morning. Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27. This is what it says. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So we see here in this section of scripture, there are really four parts. And the central section that we'll focus much of our time on at the beginning of the message is the example of Jesus that is found in verses 5 through 11. And it begins with this sort of hinge phrase that you see in your Bibles. Look at verse 5 with me. Have this in mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ Jesus, or a little less awkwardly phrased, the NIV says it this way. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. It's a little easier to understand, isn't it? Christian, your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ. And so what was his attitude? What was the mind of Christ? And here I want to ask you to go down into the weeds with me a little bit. Because we have an opportunity to understand a a few important theological points of the incarnation of Jesus. And they're precise in their nature. So look with me at verse 6. What was the mind of Christ? He gives the example right away. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, some through history have tried to take that, those two verses right there and divide them to say that somehow this talks about the essence of Jesus being something lesser than God the Father and the function of Jesus being lesser than God the Father. And I want to tell you this morning, I don't think this can be so. Because we know that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. And as God, he said, I and the Father are one, didn't he? John 1.1 tells us that Jesus was the word of God who existed before the world even began. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is in the image of the invisible God and all things were created by him and for him. And so clearly, Paul is not describing the essence of Jesus as being something lesser than God the Father. Likewise, he's not describing the function of Jesus to be something lesser in importance. Think about it with me. While on earth, Jesus showed his superiority over nature. He calmed the seas. He walked on water as God. He showed his authority over the physical realm as he healed the blind man and the leper and the woman who was bleeding and even raised somebody from the dead. He showed his superiority over the spiritual realm as he cast out demons and he even forgave sins. These are the things that only God can do. And so the essence of Jesus is that of God. The function of Jesus is that of God. And so what is Paul's point here? The text says that though he was in the form of God, he became a servant. This could be understood to read, and I think this is the way that in our English language we often understand it, that despite the fact that Jesus was God, he became a servant. But it can also be understood this way, and I think this way is more accurate given the context of the passage. Because the fact that Jesus was God, he became a servant. You see the difference? That is to say that being God, Jesus could have chosen any disposition that he wanted toward humanity. His status as God certainly afforded him the opportunity to take for himself and take and take and take. But yet, precisely because he was God, he had nothing more that he needed to gain. He had nothing to prove to anybody. He had nothing lacking for his fullness or completeness. He was God. And so instead of take, 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 he made himself a servant to give, give, Give. And so when Paul says he emptied himself, this does not mean that he emptied himself of his deity, because if he did, he wouldn't be God anymore. This also doesn't mean that when he came to earth, that somehow he emptied himself of his attributes of deity, that he gave up certain powers to come to earth. Because if he did that, he would cease to be God. But what it does mean is 
that Jesus gave up his rights. He gave up all the rights of God, all the benefits of heaven, all the glory of the throne room, and took on the rights of a lowly servant. And Jesus tells us this, Mark 10, 45, doesn't he? He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' example is one of humility that led him to serve humanity. Humility. Gave up his rights to serve humanity. The second part of this example, the second part of the mind of Christ here is that of obedience, isn't it? It says that, verse 8, that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here we see the wonder of the gospel, don't we? That the humility of the Son of God resulted in obedience to his Father for his will and plan to transfer sinful humanity from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And this obedience that started with humility and led to obedience ultimately brought him to a point of suffering and even death. Payment for sin need to be made. And to satisfy the holiness of God the Father, the perfect sacrifice needed to be offered. And Jesus was that sacrifice. To all who would believe on him, to all who would call upon his name, he gave them rights to be the children of God because of the forgiveness of their sins. Think about it for a moment. That God himself would come and seek out humanity. Not that we would somehow just reach up to him and attain him. Or not somehow that we would wander through life hoping to get to the place where we might find him, but that he would come and find us. That's incredible. And it's an incredible act of humility. Well, this... Humility that led to obedience, that led to suffering, ultimately leads to something else. And we see that in verses 9 to 11, don't we? Look at it with me. We see in verses 9 to 11 that this suffering ultimately leads to vindication. It starts with this phrase, therefore God has highly exalted. The therefore says, because of all of these things that come behind, that Jesus was humble, that he was obedient, that he did suffer, that he did die, that he saved humanity from their sins, now he gets to a place where he is exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This isn't a new name. This is a new type of recognition. This is to say that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, no deity, no power, no throne, no king, no nation, no philosophy will be greater than this person, Jesus. He will be above all and all will come to recognize his majesty and his greatness. Jesus knew this to be so. He said in John chapter 5 that the glory of the Father would be bestowed upon himself. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And it calls to mind Isaiah chapter 45 
And we can see how the glory that is given to God the Father is also the same glory that's given to Jesus, his son. And it's, the wording here is very close. Listen to this, Isaiah 45, starting at verse 22. God says to the people of Israel, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there's no other. By myself I have sworn From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against me. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and show glory. And so when you come to recognize that at the end of all things, that when human history reaches its conclusion, that all the people of history and time will come to recognize the very same truth that Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords and that God's eternal love will be expressed and his eternal judgment will be satisfied and those who believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins will be eternally rewarded with inheritance and those who did not believe in him will experience that eternal judgment For the thoughtful person, this causes great pause. Will my recognition of him on that day be a joyous recognition? Because the object of my faith, this person Jesus, has been proven true as the Lord of Lords? Or will my recognition of him on that day be a fearful recognition? Because I hardened myself against him. Or had only taken the parts of his words that made me feel good in the moment. Or I looked at him all too casually during my life. Which one will you be on that day? You can know for sure. You can even know for sure today. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you shall be saved. We see this theme, this gospel repentance, faith theme throughout the whole New Testament that when people realize that they're sinners, that they need forgiveness for their sins, they trust in Jesus and they say, you are the Lord and I am not. Please forgive me of my sin. And in that trust and in that faith comes forgiveness. It's this free gift from God that he gives to all who express it. And you know you have security in that. I had a great conversation with somebody after the first service today about how do we know that tomorrow I won't sin again and lose my salvation? (laughs) It's because I don't trust in me. And what I'm going to do tomorrow, I trust in what he's already done for me. And that grace is bestowed upon me by God. And when you 
make that decision. It is a decision. It is a faith action moment, we describe it as. To trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then it's borne out over consistency and perseverance in your life following that day. You can know for sure that when every knee bows, that your knee is bowing in great rejoicing and not in fearful shame. For Jesus, humility and suffering on earth lead to his ultimate glory. And so now we're zeroing in on the main idea of this passage because this passage is a lot about Jesus, but it's also a lot about you and me. (laughs) And for the life of a Christian, following Jesus in humility and even in suffering results in following Jesus to glory. Following Jesus in humility and even in suffering results in following him in glory. And so, Christian, verse 5 says, your attitude should be that of Jesus Christ. What is that attitude? His attitude was humility and service. He didn't take, 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 but rather he gave, gave, gave. And this resulted in his ultimate glory. You too, Christian, display your willingness to follow Jesus, not by what you get, 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 not by saying my spiritual gas tank is low and so I better turn on K-Love and get that filled up with some good Christian music or I better download another sermon to listen to to encourage me today or to read my devotional by so-and-so. And all those things are wonderful and they're meant to encourage you and to build you up. But those things don't ultimately lead you to progression in faith in the same type of way that following Jesus in humility and service does. It's not what you get, get, get. <laughs> Following him means what you give, give, give. And this results to in your glory. And when you begin to grasp that, that on God's agenda, this is a very outward-focused agenda for your life, you begin to understand why he could say in chapter 1, verse 27, look at it with me, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but your salvation and that from God. You can understand why he might say, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and here that I now still have. You can understand the need for chapter 2, verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only on his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. He begins that section, verse 27, with the call to let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. Let's be clear. (laughs) The implications of living life on God's agenda means that our driving motives 
for life are not careerism. It's not pursuing comfort or pleasure. But that what drives me as a believer is knowing Jesus and helping others to know Jesus. And when you do that, the call is to live a life worthy of the gospel. And that's not to say that you need to be worthy to accept the gospel. <laughs> it's just the opposite of that. It's because God has come to you with this grace and mercy, let your life reflect how great this grace and mercy is. Let your life reflect the gospel. What is a life worthy of the gospel? What do you expect and what do you do? He gives a list. Life worthy of the gospel is one in which you stand firm with one spirit, one mind, side by side. This is this togetherness that we talk about with some regularity. A life worthy of the gospel is a life that promotes the gospel. If you live a life that doesn't promote the gospel but default to your comfort, then there's no reason for you to stand firm because you're actually never going to be tested. But if you promote the gospel, the call is to stand firm side by side in unity. Unity is the goal, not just in this mission, but unity as you carry out the mission, walking down the path with other Christians. It's so important to be unified as a church, as a group of Christians. I mean, think about it for a minute. Look around the room. I mean, we got Browns fans in here. We have Steelers fans in here. We have Patriots fans in here. We have winners in here. And, and, but seriously, we have people of different backgrounds in here. We have different preferences in here. We have people at different seasons of life in here with different short-term family needs in here. We have all kinds of people that God brings together as one family. And unity is so important. He tells them not to be frightened, but to be courageous because this displays the destruction of their enemies and the salvation of their own souls. And then he says this in verse 29 that we've talked about. If you adopt God's agenda for your life, you will suffer for it in some way. Some of you say, I don't know if I even believe that to be true. I mean, we live in a pretty posh situation to suffer for the gospel I don't even know what that might mean in our context well I can tell you what it probably doesn't mean at least right now it doesn't mean that you're going to suffer in the same way Paul suffered and it doesn't mean that you're going to suffer even in the same way that Jesus suffered you're probably at least for the next handful of years not going to be imprisoned flogged, beaten or crucified though many before you have been but you can imagine that if truly your agenda for life shifts, and it's not just about your career and your comfort, but it is really about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known, you can start to imagine other forms of suffering that might come in. Your reputation, certain relationships, certain risks that you might take. And it's important, as a pastor, I really want you to understand and to be prepared for what is coming because statistically speaking, we live in a very unique time right now. We know if the statistics bear out to be true over the next number of years, and God does not promote some sort of massive revival, which he 
very well, very well may do, that throughout the course of all American history, there's been positive cultural pressure to be involved in a local church community. That if you were, culturally speaking, a thinking person, a reasonable person, um, a normal person, that you would be somehow engaged with a local church. It's been that way since pretty much the founding of our nation. But now, right now, we live at a hinge point in history where we have some regions of our country where there's no longer positive pressure. There's actually negative pressure. If you are a Christian, then you are not a thinking person. (laughs) You're not an educated person, or so they say. You're a weak person. You're a bigot. You're a variety of other things. And there are pockets of our country that already have negative pressure. There are some pockets of our country where you have sort of neutral standing as a believer or as a local church, neither positive or negative, and it might remain that way for a short time. And we still have pockets in our country where there's positive pressure, like there has always been in the United States of America. But the statistics show this, that unless God institutes revival during our lifetime, for most of us, what is neutral pressure and positive pressure will turn to negative pressure. That culturally speaking, there will be a negative pressure toward being associated with a local church and even clinging to the Lord Jesus. And you can now start to think to yourself, I could see how suffering might happen in that dynamic. I could see how associating myself with Jesus not just in a sort of fringe capacity, but actually clinging to his agenda for my life might really cost me some things. And so we're warned. Paul says that there's a disposition that helps you engage along these lines, however. The disposition that you engage with is that of humility. Look at it with me. Chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this, again, is founded in the example of Jesus. Humility is the disposition for the Christian because of what Christ has done for the Christian. And if you are prideful, This will stall your spiritual growth. And if you are prideful, this will even derail your ability to pursue God's agenda because the prideful person doesn't want to pursue anybody's agenda but his own. He thinks he or she knows best. But if you're humble, you can pursue and thrive and even grow in this type of relationship that he's talking about. Rick Warren says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And I like that description. Humble people are so focused on serving others that they don't think of themselves. Martin Luther once told this story about two mountain goats who met each other on the narrow ledge just wide enough for one animal. On the left was the steep rock wall, 
on the right was a plunge to a very deep lake. And the two animals faced each other. What should they do? It's too dangerous to back up. They couldn't do that. It was too narrow for them to turn around. So they couldn't do that. Now, if the goats, Luther said, had no more sense than some people, they would meet head on and start butting each other's heads until they both ended up falling off the cliff to their demise. But Luther said that the goats have better sense than this. One of the animals lays down on the trail and lets the other literally walk over them. And both of them are safe. That's a picture of a type of humility that Christians engage with with each other. Bernard of Clairvaux talked about humility in a relationship with God and God's love and truth, and he brought it all together wonderfully as he said this. He said, so long then as I am not united to God, I'm divided within myself and at perpetual strife within myself. Now this union with God can only be secured by love. And the subjection to him can only be grounded in humility. And the humility can only be a result of knowing and believing in truth. That is to say, having the right notions of God and of myself. Following Jesus in humility, and even in suffering, results to following Jesus in glory. Following him in humility and suffering results to following him in glory. And so we see that there's a final and implied encouragement for the Christian here. Having the attitude of Jesus, living a life worthy of the gospel, being unified about God's agenda and humbly carrying it out is the call of the Christian life. And the implied reward here is this, that just as Jesus was vindicated and received glory, you too will be vindicated and receive glory. Here's the logic. The logic of the passage is Jesus was humble. His humility led to obedience. His obedience led to suffering, but that ultimately he was vindicated and received glory. So, Christian, have that same attitude. Have the same mind of Christ, which means, Christian, be humble. And in your humility, exercise obedience. And even if this obedience leads you to suffering, have awareness that your suffering is not going to be like Jesus' suffering. It'll be something different. But just like Jesus, you too will be vindicated ultimately and receive glory. And your glory won't be just like Jesus's, but you will indeed receive it nevertheless. Short-term cost, long-term gain. And so be humble and be willing to suffer because you will receive your vindication. Romans chapter 8 says this. It says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us.
following Jesus in humility. And even in suffering results in following Jesus to glory. That is an important understanding if you were going to adopt God's agenda in your life. Because there's a lot of teachers out there that will tell you that the Christian life is rainbows and unicorns. That, hey, once you follow God, everything just works out perfectly. And it does work out perfectly in the end. But in the middle... There's great joy and great fulfillment and excitement and great growth and progress, and there's also suffering. So follow him, even when it gets hard. Following him in humility and suffering leads to following him in glory. And as I close, I I just think about how incredible this Savior is. We talked a lot about Jesus in the message today, and just a little bit touching on what this means for us, and that was intentional, because he is an incredible, incredible Savior. And when you begin to understand more fully who he is, you begin to understand yourself more completely. And as I close, I recount this story that I read from a world-renowned scholar, D.A. Carson, talking about two other influential figures in Western evangelicalism. Carson writes that several years ago, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Carl Henry and Dr. Kenneth Cancer for a videotaping. These two American theologians have been at the heart of much of the evangelical renaissance in the Western world. Each was about 80 years old at the time of the interview. One had written many books. The other had brought birth and nurtured one of the most influential seminaries in the West. Both had been connected to Billy Graham, the Lausanne Conference for Missions, the Assorted Congresses on Evangelism, the influential magazine Christianity Today. In short, these two men were two of the leading figures in shaping what we know to be evangelical Christianity in America in the last 100 to 150 years. This extends this influence far beyond pastors and scholars. It extends to personal encouragements and to the everyday Christian. And toward the end of the discussion, I asked them a question, more or less in these terms. I said that you two men have been extraordinarily influential for almost a half a century. Without wanting to indulge in cheap flattery, I must say that what is attractive about your ministries is that you both have retained integrity. Both of you are strong, yet neither of you are egotistical. You have not succumbed to this eccentricity in doctrine, nor this individualistic empire building that is so often the case when somebody becomes a celebrity. In God's grace, what has been the most instrumental piece in preserving you in these areas? And both men spluttered with deep embarrassment. And then one of them ventured with a kind of gentle outrage. He said... How on earth can anyone be arrogant when standing next to the cross? Following Jesus in humility and even suffering results in following Jesus to glory. And so if there's any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a wonderful Savior, not only in the effect of atoning for sin on the cross, but the wonderful example of a life of service and humility and obedience and even suffering. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to emulate him in like manner. God, we know that in our short-sighted view of life and even of our Christian experience, the notion of avoiding suffering at all cost in pursuit of our comfort so often becomes the default for our actions. And we pray today, God, that you would, as part of this spiritual growth in us, as part of this transforming work, that you would continue to shape our hearts and our minds, to shed our own agendas, to adopt your agenda of knowing Jesus and making him known, that in so that we'd be obedient to you and humble with each other, that we would have unity among the family of faith, that we'd have courage to stand firm when things get difficult. And that in the end, that the hope that we have of the glory of God would be revealed to us in eternal salvation. Lord, we love you. Give us this long view for life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.